We're about halfway through our series on the book of Romans, so I wanted to spend a little more time reviewing tonight to make sure we understand what we're reading so that we can correctly walk out what God has for us in this letter that Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 60 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And I want to challenge us tonight to engage, because this is a little more heady than usual, not to drift off, not to waste this precious time where we're gathered in the name of Christ together in daydreams or worries. Let's pray together even as I'm speaking that we would work hard to understand what Paul's saying to the church at Rome so that we can apply it, that we would together share the mind of Christ that we have in him. Romans is the longest and maybe the most significant work in Paul's ministry. Paul was formerly known as Saul from Tarsus, and he was a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee to be more specific. And the Pharisees were devoted to the Torah of Moses and to the traditions of Israel. And really, Paul more than most. He was called a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning there was the A-team and he was the captain of the A-team. Paul, like so many others in his time, viewed Jesus and his new sect of Judaism as a threat. But he went even further. He was the lead persecutor of the young church. But even more radical was Paul's conversion to Christ, recorded in Acts chapter 9, where he dramatically encountered the risen Lord. The lead persecutor of Christians became the lead propagator of their gospel. Paul hit the ground running as he was commissioned to become an apostle for Jesus, and an apostle is an official representative of the gospel to both Gentiles and Jews. Part of Paul's new vocation was that he traveled the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus. New followers of Jesus gathered in communities called churches, and Paul would write letters addressing problems or answering their questions, building their faith. And Romans was one of these letters that he wrote towards the end of his ministry. When we read Acts, which is the book of the Bible that covers the history of the early church, we find in chapter 18 that the church in Rome was made up of Jews and non-Jews. And we've said in previous weeks that this tension between non-Christian Jews and Christian Jews was one of the primary reasons why Paul was motivated by the Spirit to write this letter to the church at Rome. You see, there was a crisis in the church that found its root in the expulsion of Jews, including Christian Jews, ordered by Emperor Claudius. They were exiled for five years, and upon their return, the Jewish believers were frustrated at the lack of Jewishness in the church. For instance, they questioned whether or not Gentile Christians needed to undergo Jewish customs such as circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath laws recorded in the Torah. They wondered if they needed to undergo those specific traditions and commands from the Torah in order to be truly Christian. These tense circumstances motivated Paul to write his fullest expression of the gospel thus far, or actually in the New Testament. And the gospel is the good news that announces the impact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The letter, in summary, communicates what the gospel does for us and what the gospel does in us. So repeat that with me. What the gospel does for us and in us. You ready? One, two, three. What the gospel does for us and in us. Good. So if I were to ask you, what does the book of Romans explain to all believers for all of time, you would answer what the gospel does? Good, guys. Good. You're focused in. Good work. So there are four main sections in this letter. The first is chapters one through four, where the gospel reveals God's righteousness and our sin. 
The gospel reveals God's righteousness and our sin. The second is chapters 5 through 8 where we see the gospel creates a new humanity and a new family with Jesus as king. And then chapters 9 through 11 where we see the gospel fulfilling God's promise to Israel. The gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. And finally, chapter 12 through 16 where we see the gospel alone can unify the church. So, quiz time. In chapters 1 through 4, the gospel reveals God's and our sin. Good. Let's try that again. The gospel reveals God's Perfect. Chapters 5 through 8, the gospel creates a new. The gospel creates a new. Very good, guys. Then chapters 9 through 11, the gospel reveals God's promise to. Good. And then finally, 12 through 16, the gospel alone can unify the. Good work. Good work, guys. So in the first section of Romans, we read Paul summarizing chapters 3 through 11 in Genesis showing how all nations are trapped in sin and selfishness. That starts in chapter 1, and you, won't, you wouldn't know it necessarily just by reading it, but he gives a, uh, a very short summary of Genesis chapter 3 through 11. And that provides the sinful foundation on which all of humanity has built itself. It's a prototype of sorts pointing to the fate of mankind. It starts with the fall of man, where at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve chose their own way, they chose sin in the garden instead of God's way. Then their son killed his brother Abel, the first murder recorded in Scripture. Then we read from there, uh, society becoming so wicked that God wipes out everyone except Noah, his family members, and some of the animals. Then on to the Tower of Babel, where once again sinful humanity was trying to get to heaven, get God's power without God. And we're certainly still doing that today, aren't we? So in a very short section of Scripture... Paul gives a whole lot of information that these uh, Jewish Roman Christians would have been familiar with. They, would have, they were supposed to be saying, this is me. This is what happened a long time ago. They were thinking they were immune from that. They were past that. They were beyond that. No, this is me. As a result, Paul pronounces God's sentence that we stand guilty before him. Paul then addresses how he knows his Jewish brethren will respond. Because remember, Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he knows what they're thinking because the Spirit knows what they're thinking. And they were thinking to themselves, based on the way Paul addresses them, good thing God saved us out of all the nations and showed us how to live through God's law contained in the Torah. Observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, circumcision, and all the rest. And Paul says in so many words to these Jews, you have it all wrong. He recalls the story of the Torah telling uh, the Jews at Rome that Israel was just as sinful, idolatrous, and morally broken as the rest of the world. And in fact, they were more guilty because they had the Torah, but they weren't obeying the law. They knew better. Paul concludes that all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, are hopelessly trapped in sin and guilty before God. But thankfully, this is not the last word in redemptive history, nor is it the last word in Romans chapter 1 through 4. Instead of simply giving up on humanity by pronouncing us guilty and destroying us as a scientist would shove aside a failed experiment, Jesus, God the Son, came as mankind's rescuer, the Messiah, to die on behalf of all people, a sacrifice for sins. He became sin on our behalf. As our representative, Jesus took on himself, it says again in chapter 4 and on, 
uh, the just consequences for our pain, our sin, and, our, and the death that we've caused on ourselves, others, and the world. He overcame it all through his resurrection from the dead, and it's now Jesus who offers his life in us. And we said in two words several weeks ago, that summarizes the whole book of Romans, Christ in us, in us. You see that a lot in the book of Romans and in other New Testament letters. Paul says that all of this is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in him. And this word justification means to be declared right with God. Those who receive Christ receive a new status before God. They're no longer condemned, they're no longer guilty, but they're forgiven and they're part of a new family, a new humanity with a new future. So chapter concludes this this first section. Again, the title would be, The Gospel Declares God Righteous and Our Sin. Paul explains in chapter 4 the implications that all this has for those who are a part of Jesus' new family. And to do this, Paul goes to the story of Abraham in Genesis 15, who the Jews would have seen as the leader, the founder of their faith. And he goes to a part of the story of Abraham before the law of the Torah was given to Israel. And it says Abraham was justified by God through faith before the law was given. That is, more specifically, before he obeyed the law to be circumcised. This is a big deal because it communicates how one walks in a right relationship with God. It happens through the gift of God that, uh, called salvation that's given through faith, not by our own works. It's delivered by God to the, del- to the believer as a free gift and it makes someone new in Christ. So Adam wasn't declared righteous through obeying the law, nor is anyone else in redemptive history. God promised that Abraham would become the father, or you could say the founder of a very diverse nation called the people of God. And through uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they, they were very old, they had no children, but God made them a promise. Though they were flawed like all of us, Abraham had radical faith in God's promise to give him not only a nuclear family, but also nations that would come out of him and ultimately even Christ. And that's how he was declared righteous because he had faith even in light of uh, reality, not being able to support what what God promised. So even now, every time someone receives Jesus as their king, this promise finds fulfillment. We are spiritually speaking descendants of Abraham. We received the same promise. So we need to get uh, chapters one through four down or we won't understand the book of Romans. So I went through it uh, quickly, but I want to give again just a, a quick summary, a paragraph summary. Don't lose focus. Let's focus in together. Let's not get intellectually lazy here. All of humanity was trapped in sin and in need of God's rescue, but they couldn't free themselves from sin by obeying the law of God contained in the Torah. So God's righteous character moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection, enabling a racially and ethnically diverse faith-based family of God to form called the church, characterized by a new humanity spiritually reborn through Christ and fueled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So chapters 1 through 4 in a real brief summary, that's it. I believe the best verses to summarize chapter 1 through 3, or 1 through 4 rather, is Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. So write that down. If you want to get a flow of the whole book, those would be good verses to memorize to help you get 
what is the overall theme of chapters 1 through 4. Or if you want to continue reading Romans year after year and not ever getting it, don't write it down and continue to be confused. Uh, Romans 3, verses 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we've all sinned, we've all fall short, there's no way to get right with God outside of the redemption of Christ, his cross, resurrection, and ascension. And then him leaving us with the great counselor, the Holy Spirit. So now moving on to chapters 5 through 16, Paul goes on to show how this new people of Jesus is part of a huge story, offering them a new way of life, calling them to a new and better way of life. So again, chapters 1 through 4, the gospel reveals God's righteousness and our sin. And then chapters 5 through 16, the gospel creates a a new humanity and a new family. The gospel creates a new humanity and new family, right, chapters 5 through 16. So this new way of life in a new family begins in chapter 5 where Paul begins to explain how Jesus' family formed. Keep in mind, in Romans, we're getting a bird's-eye view of the entire gospel. We're getting all the meat and taters here, so it's a very important book to get. So how Jesus' family formed. First, he looks at what he calls the first Adam. And Adam means human. And Adam chose sin and selfishness as a result. So the first human blew it. Everything from materialism to sex trafficking finds its root in this selfish choice that Adam and then we have made to choose self and sin over God. The consequence was, of course, judgment from God because he gave us us life, he gave us his creation, and we blew his plan. So we got what we wanted, life without him. And we all came crashing down into a sea of sin along with God's creation. And that gives way to death for every single one of us, for every human being. Paul then shares the good news by contrasting the first Adam with what he names the second Adam, which is Jesus. So again, Adam, human, so the new human. We are part of now a new humanity in Christ. Jesus lived in faithful obedience as God in the flesh, and he sacrificed his life for ours so that now Jesus transfers this gift of a new humanity, or you could also say a new family, to those who know and love him. It's not a religion. It's a change in spiritual DNA when someone comes to know Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 6, where Paul reminds the church at Rome that living with Jesus means living the first Adam life and embracing, leaving the first Adam life and embracing the second Adam, Jesus. And we read Paul using baptism as a symbol of this new life. Tonight, we'll have baptism, and when someone is immersed in the water, it represents them being dead to sin, as it says in Romans 6. And then when they're they're raised up out of the water, it represents new life in Christ. It represents the resurrection of Christ, that now we are a people of the cross and a people of the resurrection. We are raised up and renewed and given new life in him spiritually now, and we will be given new life physically, new bodies, when we see him face to face So we're partially restored now. We will be fully restored when we're in the presence of our king. This new humanity, this new family is what we were intended to have all along before sin entered the picture. It was what Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. And it's the void that we're all trying to fill in various ways but can only be filled 
in Jesus. And that is the story from Genesis to Revelation. We keep trying to find other ways to fill the void, and it's only found in Christ. In this new family where we experience what it means to be fully human, what we, we experience what true peace and true love is all about, what every single one of us knows instinctively life is about. It's found in Christ. So moving on to the next chapter, chapter 7. Man, aren't you glad chapter 7 is in Romans? When you're struggling, it just makes you feel so much better. Chapter 7 answers the real and very difficult question we face of why do Christians, since they have this new nature, still struggle with sin? Why do we struggle? And it starts by answering another question. Why God delivered the laws of the Torah to Israel if his intention was to create a new family, a new humanity all along? Why do that? Well, Paul answers this question saying in in chapter 7 that God's commands in the Torah are good and demonstrated how Israel should live. But the Torah also reflected their inability to keep the law. And in fact, it revealed how they continuously broke God's law instead of keeping it. That ultimately, the more laws Israel received, the more they broke God's law. And Israel became more guilty than the rest of the world because they had the law and didn't obey it. In fact, we've already said they were more idolatrous oftentimes than even other nations. But Paul also says this hopeless paradox was the point, that they were supposed to be the people of God, and they were the ones oftentimes that had uh, rebelled the furthest away from God. Paul's showing that evil hijacked the human heart, and that as good as the law was, it could only reveal to God's people what they should do. It couldn't give them the power and the desire to do Uh, Do it, though. It was like a stop sign. The stop sign tells us to stop, but it won't make our brake, it won't make our foot press on the brake. So the law told Israel to stop sinning, but could not give them the power to walk in righteousness. Then in chapter 8, where we'll end up tonight, Paul says that the solution to this problem of not being able to please God has arrived in Jesus Christ, not in obeying the law. That God the Son, through the Holy Spirit, that is God the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Trinity, says that Jesus released his spirit in the human heart to give us the power and the desire to do what pleases him. This is, in fact, how Jesus builds his new family, this new humanity. It's not by someone just simply saying a prayer or doing right things or going to church. It's they are spiritually renewed by being given the spirit of God that indwells them. And that's good news. He kills the terrorist who has kidnapped the human heart called sin and death. And in its place, he's made us a new creation, born again, or you could say given us a new spiritual DNA, which you know is one of my favorite phrases, replacing the way of the first Adam through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we might live for the second Adam. I believe the best verses to summarize chapter 5 through 8 are Romans 8, 3 through 4. Write those down. Memorize them. It says, Romans 8, 3 through 4, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We're powerless to obey God's law. We're powerless to please him. So he gives those who know and love him the Holy Spirit. 
So that works out pretty well. That should be pretty easy to remember. Romans 3, 23 through 24, and Romans 8, 3 through 4. And that'll get you caught up to where we're at right now in the book of Romans. Every time we go through a book in this church, at the end, I hope and pray that every one of you could communicate it to a friend or neighbor. If all we do is learn the word, and we're not, and we, we uh, and I've been here many, many times, but we listen to it, and then we forget what we've heard, James tells us that that's very dangerous. We listen to it. We become acclimated to the truths in uh, uh, the book that we're reading. We assimilate them into our lives. We write them down. We memorize different portions. We're disciplined in our thinking so that we're making every punch count. Church is boring if you just come and listen. It's boring. We'll get into the heart a little later, but now we're in the head. So far, then, we've read chapters 1 through 8, where we've seen the gospel reveal God's righteousness and our sin, and how the gospel reveals a new, a new humanity, a new family in Christ. So let's jump into our passage tonight. Uh, you can turn on your screen of some sort, or the Bible, or you can look up here. I want you to just read Romans 8, 15 through 30, mainly so I have time to get a drink because I've been talking really fast here to get through this summary and I need some beverage. So you read Romans 8, 15 through 30 on your own. Read it kind of a little quicker than you normally would because we're going to go back over it, but just so you get a bird's eye view. Romans 8, 15 through 30, go ahead and read. Okay, you know, I shouldn't drink coffee while I'm actually teaching. I feel I'm like shaking a little bit and I'm extremely hot. Thank you for the water, Josie, lifesaver. I was just going to ask for a cold beverage. So in this section, we see that it communicates the tension between the kingdom of God being here now in the form of spiritual salvation and a new family, but also not fully here until we see Jesus. And it helps us to understand how to thrive in this tension of being in Christ Right now, where our feet are standing right now, our butts are sitting right now, this tension of being with Christ, but not with him physically yet. It's painful, isn't it? This passage, this section communicates how to thrive in light of where we're at in redemptive history. We're told in this chapter that this new family led by the new Adam, Jesus, was made possible through the indwelling Holy Spirit and will give us an intimate, loving family in which we can call God Abba, which means Daddy. We'll also be a family at war with sin, just as Israel was. But this war with sin looks very different for Christ followers than it did for Israel. Whereas Israel was at war with sin in such a way that it dominated them. It was all-consuming. 
Sin was their dictator. They were never able to break, break free because they couldn't keep the law. So they battled both internally, meaning they couldn't obey the law, and externally, meaning their circumstances were like ours, often laced with sinful people and overpowering temptations. Paul is telling the church at Rome and us who believe and know him, who live by the Spirit, that while we still struggle with sin, that again is discussed in depth in chapter 7, we're not dominated and ruled by sin because Jesus is our righteousness and he's given us the Holy Spirit. Has changed our spiritual DNA. So the Roman church and our struggle now, unlike Israel, is against sin's external impacts. Through our own sinful choices and the choices of others and the effects of sin in the world. So again, that gives us just a snapshot of Romans chapter 8, what you just read. So let's dive into this in a little more detail and then we'll get to the application. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, this, this first section or first couple sections, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who suggest, subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now we need to remember again that this section is about the tension of living in the chapter of redemptive history the Roman church we're in and we are in right now. That is, we're positionally slaved and declared righteous right now, but we still struggle with the effects of sin. How many of you still struggle with the effects of sin? Okay, we've got some liars in the room. Um, this section is explaining the reality of this tension again and how we thrive in it. Verses 18 through 23 is telling us that just as Jesus had to suffer in his fight against sin, so will we. But we know the outcome because Jesus' outcome is ours. He was victorious over sin. He rose from the dead, and so will we. Spiritually, we've already risen. Physically, we're yet to receive our resurrection, but we will have it when we see him. It says, though, that even in light of this, creation itself is waiting for Jesus to restore and rescue it from sin's effects. Just as we groan for our physical bodies to be restored spiritually, again, we've already been rescued, so creation groans to be restored into the new heavens and the new earth. Just last week, one of the McWhorter girls, the McWhorter girls are, you know, I've known them all since they were born, and they're my buddies, you know, even apart from their parents. And uh, one of the little girls that will go unnamed was, I don't want her to get embarrassed, but she was bothered by the fact that at our home group party, a little bird had become decapitated, probably by some cat that had its belly filled. So Jackie, you know, the little McWhorter girl comes up to Jackie, and Jackie basically says, Chris, will you take care of this? And so I go out and grab a shovel, and I'm burying this headless bird. And, you know, of course, it's Jordan's and Catherine's kids. They're very theologically minded and disciple their children very well. So one of their actually younger girls said, well, we have to bury it so it'll go to heaven. And I just kind of listening and like, yeah, sure. And so I, I take the opportunity. I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit and all that. And then so they say, one of them asks, well, Chris, when Jesus comes back, will that bird get its head back? 
And yes, I believe yes, Jesus will restore all things. That means everything in all creation is going to, it's not just some generic thing. Creation is groaning. Creation is suffering along with us, and he will restore all things. So that's just my personal opinion, that that bird will get its head back. Uh, so on to the next section, Romans 8, 24. It says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. How many of you sometimes don't know what to pray? This is the answer right here. Pay attention. This is the answer. This is the answer to our frustration. We don't know what to pray. This hope for members of Jesus' family to be physically restored along with creation is a hope given to us at salvation. And it has teeth. It's not like, I hope that I'll win the lottery. It's not that kind of hope. It's a hope with teeth, not just an empty hope. The non-believer doesn't have this hope, but we wait patiently and confidently for it. And the Holy Spirit knows the agony of waiting through cancer, through death, through loss, through homicides, through the suffering we see in all creation. So he comes to bat for us, powerfully interceding for us with these mysterious prayers called groanings that we'll get to at the end. These groans are not the gift of tongues because Paul is applying this to all believers and ultimately to us, to the Roman church and us. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30 says that only some Christians receive the gift of tongues. That is a, a, a heavenly language between you and God, depending on how you interpret it. Or, as some would interpret it, the ability to speak a foreign language evangelistically in order to propagate the gospel. But that's not what is in mind here. It's a different kind of groaning because he's applying it to all believers and not all believers receive the gift of tongues. The word means sigh. So this is spiritually sighing, or you could say the prayer of sighing. You know, <sighs> that means a lot, doesn't it? A sigh can mean a lot. And the Roman church would have been familiar with this need for the prayer of sighing because they were suffering. You see, this Roman church, these Jewish Christians especially, they knew the story of redemptive history up until their time. They knew that God had freed the Israelites from Egyptian oppression and slavery, horrible dictatorship and suffering and martyrdom. They knew that, and they had, I'm almost sure, they had communicated that to Gentile Christians. And I'm confident that they would not be able to fathom the notion that God may not rescue them from this horrible Roman oppression that probably to them seemed like the new Egypt. But God didn't always rescue his people from their physical circumstances. Plenty of nations conquered Israel, but Jesus came so that the evil that causes the Egypts, the Babylons, the North Koreas, and all other kinds of oppression would one day be defeated through King Jesus. So God through Christ in the Spirit has taken redemptive history one step farther by declaring victory over evil and giving his people spiritual freedom now and physical freedom when he returns, both to his creation and to humanity. But he knows this time is hard. So we have the Spirit who joins our groaning, our sighing, 
because we don't always know what to pray. We don't even know our own hearts, let alone the hearts of our other brothers and sisters and the world and those we're trying to reach out to. Oftentimes our prayers don't make sense, but the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and makes them right. That means if you know Jesus, your prayer life is perfect. You just need to come to him because the Spirit's got your back. Sometimes my prayers feel like they're bouncing off the walls, but the Holy Spirit is better than steroids for your prayer, isn't it? That's what punches it through the walls. It's only our mind telling us we can't trust our prayers that defeats us. We cry out to him. He'll make the word sound better as we learn the word, and he'll strengthen our minds as time goes on. But from moment number one, you can be a prayer warrior for Jesus because you have the power of the Holy Spirit making you new. So this last section I want to go over again before we get into application. I'm going as fast as I can, guys, but I got a lot to cover tonight. I really feel like I need to get through it. Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Again, he's the new Adam. And we're following him. He's the firstborn. We're following him in his new family. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He chose us. He called us. He made us right with himself. And he, will glor- he is glorifying us, making us more like himself. And he will glorify us ultimately when we see him face to face. Isn't this encouraging? It says the Lord uses all things, even painful things, even difficult things, even everyday mundane things for the good of his followers. Specifically, trials is, are, what in my, are what's in mind here, and those will make us more like Jesus, and that's his ultimate goal in our lives. We're already like him positionally. We're made righteous before him, but he's making us experientially, that is, behaviorally, more like him through our suffering. So why do we question when we suffer? Why am I suffering? Because I live in a fallen world. And because Jesus uses it to make us more like himself. Don't be like so many that we've seen that have fallen away because of suffering. You will suffer. And make a decision right now, brothers and sisters, that when you suffer, you will glorify him. Because you know it's just going to get better. Because there's nothing like becoming like Jesus. And the worst thing you can do when you feel like you can't pray is not to pray. But I'm getting to application. I'm just going to skip on to the application. Let's move on. I think we've covered enough. The section of Romans 8 shows us that we can thrive even in painful circumstances because of the supernatural hope we have in Christ both now and in the future when we see him face to face. And through the Spirit's prayer of groaning, that spiritual sign empowering our groaning. So in two simple points, this passage shows us how to thrive in our painful circumstances through hope, right? And spirit-assisted prayer. You're going to see that hope and this spirit-assisted prayer is the perfect marriage between the head and the heart to draw us to himself. So we have hope as children of God. Verse 17, this is the first thing, the first application, hope. Verse 17 tells us that we're co-heirs with Christ, that we indeed have an inheritance in him. And we discussed that quite a bit last week. And the church would have understood this. The Roman church would have understood this. You see, the firstborn son in that Greco-Roman culture was to inherit the estate. And the reason, that was their their built-in social security system. That's how they provided for the family. 
The firstborn son would inherit all the wealth, and then he was to take care of the rest of the family. And that was also to keep the family's wealth from dissipating too much through multiple heirs. So Paul's not advocating this system. It's not some statement on sexism or anything like that. He's not rejecting it or endorsing it as a side note. It's just an illustration that the people would have understood. It says in verse 16 that God's children did not receive a spirit of slavery that would give way to fear. He says this because there's two ways we can relate to Jesus. And I want you to be asking yourself right now, which way do you relate to Jesus? We can either approach him as a slave or as a firstborn co-heir son or daughter. Slave, firstborn co-heir, where we get it all. We can still approach him as a slave even after becoming a Christian because it's possible having trusted Jesus to make us righteous before him to slip back into a performance-based acceptability, a mindset that says, I must perform in order for him to love me more or to manage his existing love for me. It's maintained by works if we live like a slave. So our hope guarantees our inheritance as his child. We're no longer slaves. He, he loves us so much. I mean, imagine with me if you went to Lake Erie with a sponge and you stuck that sponge into Lake Erie and you soaked up as much water as you possibly could and then you squeezed it out on the beach. Would Lake Erie be impacted at all by what you just took out? We cannot, Jesus wants us to experience way more of his love than we will ever experience this side of heaven. Did you know that? We can never ask for it too much. We can't ask for more than he can give us. You see, slaves obey because they have to, a son or daughter, because they love and find joy in daddy. A slave works under the threat of punishment or revenge. A child sees discipline as a form of loving instruction, not retribution. Again, a slave suffers from extreme insecurity because if she slips up, the master might beat her. But the daughter of King Jesus lives securely, knowing that if she slips up, she's forgiven. A slave focuses on external behavior and following rules, whereas the son concentrates on relationship with and attitudes towards Jesus. The slave must work to survive and is given no honor, but the child is honored no matter what and invited into dad's work. Verse 18 goes on to describe this great hope that we have. It says that we'll share in his glory even though we suffer. And this is a crucial part of our faith because we're all going to wonder at one point or another, if you haven't been there, you will. Is it worth all the heartache? Is my faith worth it? And unfortunately, we've seen many fall away over the years wrestling with this question. Paul is saying that when we understand the gravity, the beauty of our future hope, we'll not entertain the idea that our current problems outweigh the weight of our future glory. Bible scholar and theologian F.F. Bruce says it much better than I can. He says it's not merely that the glory is compensation for the suffering. It actually grows out of the suffering. There is an organic relation between the two for the believer as sure as there was for the Lord. Many of us know this from personal experience, don't we? That our sweetest times with the Lord, our most fruitful seasons of walking with Jesus where we felt closest to him, where when we had the least to offer, when we were suffering. I heard the Kimballs talk about how the college ministry got its feet and started to grow when Christine had cancer. 
The youth ministry from which this church came out of grew when I was at my worst. All kinds of internal family conflict and conflict in the church and not knowing which way was up or down, but groaning, crying out for God and seeing him provide. Beyond suffering and our position as children of God, we find hope in a very curious place that we don't talk about very often. Again, speaking to our mind. In verses 19 through 22, it says that one day our hope will become a reality when it sweeps up us up with creation, up into it. It says that even creation is subjected to frustration now, just as we are. Preacher of old Jonathan Edwards said what we all know to be true about creation. He says, God has a disposition to communicate himself, to spread abroad his own fullness his purpose was, his, was for his goodness to overspill his own being, as it were. He chose to create the heavens and the earth so that his glory could come pouring out from himself in abundance. He brought physical reality into existence in order that it might experience his glory and be filled with it and reflect it. Every atom, every second, every part and moment of creation. He made human beings in his own image to reflect his glory and place them in a perfect environment which also reflected it. Earth exists for the same reason that mankind and everything else exists. That is to glorify God. But we know again, according to verse 20, that the creation was subjected to frustration. The meaning of this word frustration means in the original language that nature is alienated from God and us. We were meant to rule over creation, and yet it fights against us. It's not as beautiful or as peaceful as it was created to be. Animals weren't meant to survive by killing each other. The sun was not meant to burn our skin. Animals were not created to be afraid and fight for their lives. All creation groans. We know the whole universe is deteriorating, running down, losing more energy than it can generate. Everything in nature grows old and dies, including us. Nature is naturally a killer. And this too gives us hope because when we struggle with the effects of heat stroke, hurricanes, forest fires, starvation, animal extinction, and all the rest, we're reminded of this tension we experience between the now and the not yet. They can serve as reminders that he's coming back soon. And we remember that homecomings is just around the corner and all creation is gonna be made new. So the next time you look outside and see the weather turning dangerous, or you turn on the news and see creation groaning, let it make you homesick for the future glory of Jesus that he'll bring. The key verse to understanding how to thrive through suffering is Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. There's good news in this verse that gives us hope for our future glory. Sometimes we think we need some sort of good thing to happen to us that God has withheld. It could be a relational gift from God, like a friendship or a romance that you feel like he's withholding from you. It could be a tragedy or a crisis or even a normal day, everyday frustration like finances that just won't seem to leave you alone. These things are in reality playing an important role in making us more like Jesus which, was, which will help us to become more fully human and more fully available and loving to people. It'll grow us. So this assurance means that when we're struggling, we will ultimately win even when it seems like we're losing. But those without Christ lose even when it seems like they're winning. 
This means that good things can be very bad for those who don't love the Lord. Do you know why that is? And I say this with all gentleness and humility for those of you who are still on the journey trying to to find truth, and we're glad you're here tonight. We believe God brought you here for the reason, for a reason. But the reason this is dangerous is because people outside of an intimate relationship with Jesus have the, have the illusion that they're self-made people. So they see salvation in things or other people rather than Jesus. At least bad circumstances can wake up a Christian and, and reveal to them how, how broken and vulnerable they are and how much they need Jesus. But when the unbelieving heart experiences success and pleasure, it only reinforces the illusion that one doesn't need God and that the individual can be the master of their own fate, and that's a lie. Pride over confidence and self-centeredness grow, and they continue to take over. But for the believer, Romans 8.28 says that all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. Notice that it doesn't say each thing by itself is good but that all things work together for the good. Randy Alcorn in his book, If God is Good, provides us with a useful illustration to understand this truth. He says, before my mother made a cake, she used to lay each of the ingredients on the kitchen counter. One day as only a boy can, I decided to experiment. I tasted all the individual ingredients for a chocolate cake. Baking powder, baking soda, raw eggs, vanilla extract. I discovered that almost anything that goes into a cake tastes terrible by itself. But a remarkable metaphor, metamorphosis took place when my mother mixed the ingredients in the right amounts and bakes them together. The cake tasted delicious. Yet judging by the individual ingredients, I never would have believed the, ta- the cake could taste so good. So Romans 8.28 doesn't say that we should say it's good if we get in a car accident or lose a loved one. That's not what it's saying. And don't tell people they should count it all joy or some nonsense like that when they're suffering. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that no matter how bitter the taste, God will mix it together in ways that will possibly see this side of heaven and that we'll certainly see on the other side. That we can have confidence. It doesn't mean that we paste a smile on our face. We'll see what it means here in a moment, what we should do when we're suffering. The reality is we'll always define our good in terms of what brings us health and happiness now, but God defines good is what will make us more like himself. The Lord knows we'll suffer in this tension, having a great hope, but also yearning for sin and death to be no more. So he left us with the Holy Spirit who allows us to groan. And this moves us to the second thing that allows us to spiritually thrive during difficult circumstances. So we find hope in our position as children of God through the brokenness of creation and through our suffering. And this first hope is geared towards our minds, Specifically, it tells us what to think about when we suffer. I am his heir. I am his child. He's going to cause all things to work together for the good. You go to Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3. You rest in Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8, and you let it fuel your mind, and you pray those verses out loud, especially when you don't feel like it. That's hope. Man, if your boat is sinking and someone throws out a raft, you jump on it. Whether you feel like it or not, even though your legs are aching and the air is freezing and that water's icy, you jump in because it's your only hope and it's your only prayer. So is our identity in Christ and our future glory with him. 
But sometimes our heart gets stirred up in these moments or it gets frozen, numb. And that's when the heart comes in, the prayer of spiritual sighing. And I'm going to invite up Kimball and Christine now. And I'm going way late, guys. I warned Kimball that I was going to. It's just I tried to shorten it. I couldn't do it. I tried all day. I tried last week. I couldn't do it. I could not get it. I, I got it as short as I could. There's a relationship between the mind and the heart here. When we're struggling with pain of living in the tension of now, looking forward to our future redemption, we use the mind and the heart in the battle, not just one. I don't care if you primary interact with the Lord through your mind or you primary interact with him through the heart. You need both. I can't get into all the ways that you'll become lopsided and dead meat in the hands of the enemy in the spiritual battle if you do one and not the other. But just know we need both. Regardless of your wiring, the mindset of the Holy Spirit, that is the mind God has redeemed, the saved person, focuses on the hope we have in store, as we've discussed. But here's where the heart comes in. In Romans 8, 15, it says that by the Spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. The Holy Spirit hears our groans when pain and struggle are so intense or so confusing, confusing or when we feel numb. Like we haven't been intimate with the Lord in months or years. We join the mindset on hope in Christ and our future in him with the heart set on him as well. The Holy Spirit joins our groaning with his own groaning on our behalf. He translates the cry of our heart even when we don't understand it. That means the worst thing to do is to choose not to pray when your prayers seem confusing, numb, or painful, or pointless. That's when it's time to pray. That's when you're to practice the prayer of spiritual sighing. We understand what this means up into a point, don't we? Spiritual sighing. You ever come home from work and your roommate or spouse or friend, you go, oh, and they say, another day with that rotten boss, huh? They know you and they know your work situation. So much more with the Holy Spirit. So we sigh in prayer, whether you're facing deep personal loss, wrestling with a tough life decision, confronting your own failures and sins, drowning in lack of intimacy with Christ, when human vocabulary can't capture the depth and breadth of what you're going through, when you simply can't find the words, the Spirit himself intercedes with our groaning. So the worst thing, again, is to choose not to pray when we don't feel like praying because this is when our weakness is infused with his strength. During these times, our faith grows because we don't feel like we can address our prayers on our own. Sometimes we just pray these generic prayers. Lord, bless this person. Bless that person. Help me with this. Help me with that. And most of the stuff we could just do. Our prayers seem weak, so we sigh. This sign could look like silence, just being before God. Here I am. You know my heart. It could look like tears. It could look like yelling. It could look like crying out our emotions. Lord, why can't I experience you? I know. I read the Psalms. You're a God to be experienced. Why do you seem so far? I read Song of Songs, and I'm to have an intimate relationship with you, a passionate relationship with you. Why can't I feel you? Lord, this loss seems so near. I feel like I can't get out of bed. This depression is choking me. Or it could just be tears. All three members of the Trinity, we've got some big guns going to bat for us when we pray. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo addresses the Trinity's role in our prayer. I love this. He says, There is one in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that may be brought against us, guaranteeing salvation in the day of judgment. Full stop right there just for a moment. Defending us. 
That means when you feel insecurity in your prayer or when you're going through Romans chapter 6 through 8 or uh, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 or the Psalms and you're, you're clinging to your hope in Christ and you hear that voice in your head that says, you, you're dumb. You don't understand the Bible as well as Beto does. Or you can't share the gospel as well as Kimball does. Or you can't sweat on the stage as well as Chris does. Or whatever the thing is, you hear those lies in your head and you say, I have one. I have the most powerful king in the universe defending me against these accusations. And I will not listen to them. They will not have me. But there is also, Paul asserts in these verses, again, Douglas Moo, an intercessor in the heart, the spirit of God who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. So then to say we don't think we can pray is an insult to the Trinity. I don't want to hear any of you guys say you can't pray. That is bullcrap straight from the pit of hell. An effective prayer life is yours in Christ. You and I may be struggling to know what to pray, but we should never feel like we're incapable of praying because we have the Trinity joining us. Prayer on steroids, prayer beyond our own abilities, guaranteed prayer that will make a difference. So we have a supernatural hope that allows us to look forward to the day when we'll see the glory in store for us in Christ, and we know it will be infinitely better than the the comfort we would have experienced if we would have never suffered in this first place and a supernatural intercessor as well, supercharging our prayer lives. So if you walk away, one thing I want you to walk away with here tonight, a couple things, is the worst thing you can choose to do when you feel like not praying, when it feels pointless, is not to pray. The worst thing we can do when we don't feel like dwelling on our hope in Christ is to not think on those things. His ever-present help will be ours if we ignore the first Adam residue And listen to the second Adam who reigns over us because it's not about our prayers. It's about the one who comes alongside of us in prayer. Amen? All right. Lord, I'm tired. I have the feeling we're all tired. That was a lot. Lord, we pray for your spirit to apply those things in our hearts and our lives that you want us to have. Lord, I pray that you would fix our minds, discipline our minds, Lord, to understand your word. Lord, that there would be no sport, there would be no academic subject, there would be no person even that we know better than your word. We thank you for it, Lord, and we want it to change us and grow us, and we want to cling to it, Lord. Teach us how to groan, Spirit, please. In Jesus' name, amen.